Welcome to the latest episode of Insights with AMSI. My name is Paige Susi, the Community Director at AMSI, and I'll be your host. Today, our special guest is Kirk Morales, the founder and CEO at Persosa. Welcome, Kirk. Thanks, Paige. Nice, nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I guess the first thing, of course, is a congratulations on your seed round. Thank Very you. exciting. Thank you. Yeah, so um, I guess before we get into all of the Persosa stuff, um, a little bit, I guess I want to dive into a little bit of your background because you have some sort of varied different projects and companies you've worked with. I always think the most exciting one is the NSA, though, of course. So (laughs) I feel like you have to bring that up. So how did you uh, sort of get into that scholarship? And what were you doing? What you can tell us. What were you doing while you were there? Um, Yeah, it's funny because that's the one thing I can talk the least about. Um, (laughs) It was interesting. It was a really great opportunity. It was uh, I found it when I was in high school. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. And so they were piloting this. Uh, scholarship program with recent high school grads, mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of like a, it was an employment slash go to school program. So you know during the summers you were required to be on site and you were fully mm-hmm. clearance. I mean top top secret SEI clearanced employee mm-hmm. of the NSA, um, and then during the school year your job was to go to school. Um, and so what was what was cool about that uh, for someone in my shoes was. I had a job when I was there, and I was working on real projects and yeah. you know classified work, and it was really exciting. Um, but I had the opportunity every summer to work in a different department, so mm-hmm. I had, had a lot more exposure to the different oh, divisions, nice. and uh, and also I had a lot more freedom to go and frankly just like tour parts oh, of absolutely. the NSA or like yeah. uh, you know partner divisions. So like being able to go and do tours of like FBI stuff. Yeah. And, um, so being a student, kind of being able to hold up the card, it, it, it allows you to get away with a lot. Cool but card. Yeah, the cool card. Um, but no, it was, it was great because, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of other people that work in mm-hmm. government agencies. Yeah. Um, and I feel like my opportunity, it was a great opportunity just because I had a lot more mm-hmm. exposure rather than just kind of being stuck in my role and not mm-hmm. knowing how other departments work. So I got to see kind of the, the higher level picture of it. It was really interesting. So was that sort of when you started getting more interested in sort of like the tech side of things or was that earlier in high school or when did you start down that road? It was earlier in high school and I I think Mm -hmm. that was one of the things that allowed me to get that scholarship Mm -hmm. um, was I, we had a good family friend um, Mm -hmm. that was a developer um, and so he kind of just started teaching me and I think like any other developer, you really don't know what you're doing at first. You're just like, okay, if I write this, I can get this and cool. And you don't understand how the pieces come together. Mm -hmm. Um, So in high school though, I was, I was building some products and, um, you know, what was the first product? The first major product was actually a grade tracking system, which today sounds silly, but um, you know, when I was in high school, like towards the end of high school is when they finally started using software. Mm-hmm. And before that, teachers would submit handwritten grades, right? And they'd oh like gosh. turn in their reports at the end of the semester yeah. and someone would tie them together and print the report cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, this is silly. Uh, I'm going to write something to make it easier for teachers to manage it. And wow. never went anywhere. I didn't have a, you know, didn't, <laughs> didn't get a single account. I had one or two teachers that like played around with it all over the weekend for me yeah. to give me some feedback, but it was more of just a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we could probably talk for the next two hours of like <laughs> the, you know, half dozen to dozen products that I've built that never had any customers whatsoever. You know, you gotta, you gotta <laughs> try it all out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So no, it was, it was before that I was doing a lot of uh, development mm-hmm. before this program and then through the program and then and more so even afterwards. Got it. So you were working with the NSA and then you were at Barrett's, which is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so when did you start doing like actual contracting that just wasn't like, you know, working on your own internal projects or like when did you start having actual clients? 
Um, it started a little bit still when I was a teenager. So oh, okay, cool. when I was 15 with this family friend, mm-hmm. um, we formed a little, you know, contractual software development company. And, and what was that called? Uh, it was called Invisoft. Okay. Yeah. Terrible name. I have a history of terrible companies. <laughs> um, the, the logo is even worse. Um, and so the, our first client was a newspaper delivery company here in Phoenix. Um, and so they managed the routes and, you know, the customers mm-hmm. and every week they'd say, okay, we need this many newspapers and they'd yeah. figure out the routes for all their drivers and made sure all their customers, a pretty interesting operation. And they were doing it wow. all manually. So I wrote them some software that would allow them to, you know, it was kind of a CRM, mm-hmm. uh, slash route management slash invoicing, mm-hmm. um, sold it to them for $400. Oh my gosh. Which I, <laughs> Probably undersold back myself. Now, yeah, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that could have been like the thing for me. It you could know, have. I gave it away for four hundred bucks. <laughs> um, but again, another good experience. So that was kind of, you know, it was it was few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, some website projects here and there, nice. um, and it wasn't really until um, you know maybe five to 10 years ago that I personally really started doing a lot more contractual work. Mm-hmm. Um, I was you know involved with the NSA, and then after college. Um, I took a job with a local web analytics consulting company, so there mm-hmm. was some development and consulting as part of that. Yeah. Uh, and then there was towards the tail end of that that I started venturing out and working with clients one-on-one again. So your time with actual, actual metrics, mm-hmm. um, what did you sort of take away from that as an employee versus being you know, the CEO, CTO, which seems to be more of the trend? Yeah, you know... What I enjoyed about that job was I learned a lot about marketing from an analytics perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and frankly, I, I think I owe a lot of what I'm doing today thanks to my time at Actual Metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big learnings there was that you know, companies, especially at the time, so this is started there about 2008, mm-hmm. um, companies were spending a lot of money on different campaigns, right? And it was... Uh, it was maybe a little bit social, uh, not as much back then, but there was emails, there was you know a lot of pay-per-click. And no one knew how anything was doing, right? It's like, hey, we're going to spend millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. um, on all these marketing efforts and cool, our sales went up, maybe, right? Yeah. And if they didn't, all right, Can't we Can't actually see the direct Yeah, you don't know. But maybe? <laughs> right. And so our responsibility um, in that company was really to be the third-party mm-hmm. analytics and auditing company. So we'd go into these brands and we'd intentionally be separate from their agency because mm-hmm. their agency is getting paid to perform. Of course. Um, and you so can't... So might nest- fudge them a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or not fudge them, but just you know position it in a way that yeah. looks better than it really is. And so yeah. we could come in and say, first of all, we can ensure that your analytics is set up properly so we know mm-hmm. everything's being tracked. Uh, but then also, here's how well it's actually performing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that part of it was interesting to me in that... Uh, you know. People do marketing whether or not they know how well it performs. Mm-hmm. At the time, a lot didn't know how well it performed. Um, and the opportunities we could open up for clients by showing them what's working and what's not mm-hmm. uh, is really powerful. Uh, and that that part of it still applies today. That's awesome. So, um, And then from there, you went to start your own company again? Yes. With InTracker. Yes. Correct. Okay, yep. so elaborate a little bit on that for us. Yeah, so there actually was a little piece in between. Um, I was at American Express. Okay. Um, that yes. didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> I just, I realized that, you know, I, I did the government and then I did small business and yeah. then I tried going back to enterprise and I just, it, I, it wasn't Not right so for much. me. Mm-hmm. It wasn't right for me. Um, but yeah, so then I, I started in tracker. Um, that was, uh, it was a web-based inventory management system specifically mm-hmm. for SMBs. Um, and it was one of those projects where had a friend that had a store and they couldn't find an inventory system that worked well for them in their budget. Mm-hmm. I couldn't really find anything either. And so I was like, hey, cool, I'm going to go ahead and build this. 
So it was a night and weekend project turned into, you know, I guess what you can call a startup. Yeah. Um, uh, and looking back, I realized it was more of just a project than it was a, <laughs> you know, a company, especially, you know, what I've learned between now and then. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was fun regardless. Very cool. So then the next the next big venture was Hopscratch, mm-hmm. which um, I had the good fortune to work with you at, which yes. was amazing. Um, and so I guess that takes us more into the marketing side of things and the automation. And I know that you, I mean, just in how what we were working on together, it was always blew my mind your ability to automate every tiny little piece of everything <laughs> and anything that was there. Um, so where was so what was the goal with that? What was the inspiration? And you know what did you learn from? that whole experience yeah so i mean you obviously know right Hopscratch mm-hmm. uh was built to help entrepreneurs start their business mm-hmm. um and so what we were trying to do was piece together a lot of manual processes mm-hmm. into a system that um was not only easier for our customer but mm-hmm. also was easier on us and in order to do that second piece we had to build automation right mm-hmm. so it's um how can we take things that all you know have been done by hand up until now what can we automate mm-hmm. and if there are pieces that we we can't automate. Um, like I know one of our biggest things was registering an EIN, right? Like you can't automate that. You, you have to do it manually or a lot of times you have to end up on the phone with someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so what can we do around that to mm-hmm. facilitate that the, the piece that has to happen manually? How do you make it easier? Yeah. Um, and how do you make sure that those little tasks don't slip between the cracks? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was the first part of the automation was how do we automate the processes mm-hmm. um, to make it you know, maybe to the end consumer, it looks like it's completely automated. And to Mm -hmm. us, it's 80% automated. And then the second side of that is how do you automate the marketing and the like post sale marketing, I guess you could call it even Mm -hmm. right. That like the engagement after someone actually signs up with you. And, um, you know, one of the challenges that we faced was, all right, well, if we have someone come in and they're talking to a particular rep, well, we want to make sure that their interactions are with that rep throughout their entire experience. Like mm-hmm. they, they need to have a really great consistent experience. Um, so we didn't want a welcome email to come from the CEO. Mm-hmm. We wanted the welcome email to come from the person that was talking to them from the beginning that knows their business, that understands what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we face that challenge of, all right, how do we take this information that we know about this person and the type of business they're starting and the name of their business and mm-hmm. how do we match that with the person in our organization that they were working with so that when they get that welcome email and they get reminder emails for tasks that they have to do, it's coming from Paige with Paige's <laughs> face on the bottom of the email. But it, And it's talking about their business specifically and maybe mm-hmm. their industry. Um, and so that was the whole other side of the automation that we wanted to do that wasn't so much for us and how do we build a scalable business but was really more for the consu- the customer of how do we make a consistent and pleasant customer experience. Yeah. And at the time that we were doing this, do you think like, because automation and this whole idea of trying to streamline things and make it as, you know, technology based as possible is still something that companies are, you know, struggling with and trying to figure out. Sure. Um, so do you think that, you know, we were sort of like ahead of the curve or like just dealing with sort of, I mean, where do you think we were sort of in that that curve? Because I feel like right now just is when people are really starting to adopt that. I think in some senses we were ahead of the curve, especially for the type of organization that we were, right? Mm-hmm. A smaller company. We didn't have a lot of resources. We were trying to do it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, some of this stuff has been around in the enterprise space for a while, mm-hmm. but you're talking about you know Fortune 500 companies that can throw money at something and have, mm-hmm. you know, a hundred engineers build a custom solution. Yeah. 
Um, and so, uh, so in our, you know, in, in the world that we lived in, I was definitely ahead of the curve. Um, mm-hmm. and really that was one of the things that led me to wanting to found Persosa to begin with yeah. was noticing some of the limitations that were out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at some of these problems that we were facing and, and thinking, you know, why isn't there a good solution for this? Or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's a solution, but it's going to cost way too much. So how, do, why isn't there a good solution for, mm-hmm. um, you know, sub enterprise companies to accomplish these things? Yeah. Um, and the answer for a lot of it is it's not not technology bound it's just no one's done it right or no one's you know pieced together yeah. the right pieces to make it work properly mm-hmm. isn't it funny how some of these concepts that come out later on it's like i just expected that that already existed but it just no one had actually taken the time to look into it or try to make it or what have you so um so what were some of those lessons that you sort of referenced that led you to starting persosa and just give us a little bit of a lowdown on what persosa is and how how you guys do that yeah, so um, it was really a, a combination of what I had learned from doing some of my own companies like Hopscratch and those mm-hmm. automation problems we were facing. Um, and then looking back at my time doing analytics consulting and mm-hmm. uh, analytics uh, product management and development and stuff. And realizing, you know, I know what data we have mm-hmm. and I know what data we have in real time versus what's maybe stored. And everyone, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's familiar with Google Analytics. Um, problem with Google Analytics is you can't act on it in real time. Mm-hmm. You can look at a report from yesterday and say, okay, cool, this one converted, but there was 24 hours that went on between then and now, and mm-hmm. now you can't make a decision. You, you're, the only decision you can make is moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized, once again, like there's no good reason for this, right? Why can't we combine what you're able to do with analytics and real-time tracking with what you're able to do you know, on a website? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of inspired a little bit by one of the challenges, again, we faced at Hopscratch, which is, how can we maybe change our site a little bit to speak more towards the appropriate type of business owner mm-hmm. so that someone starting an accounting practice sees different terminology on the website than yeah. someone's trying to start a law firm. Yeah. Um, and so Persosa is really an expansion on that idea, mm-hmm. um, but utilizing a lot more real-time tracking information that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the day, what our platform does is we'll uh, dynamically change content across a customer's entire website mm-hmm. in the effort to show a more consistently personalized experience for the end consumer. Wow. So if you're a consumer and you're clicking from a hyper-targeted Facebook ad, for example, mm-hmm. you're now landing on a site that uses the same imagery. It has a similar call to action. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe any other segmentation or demographic information you're able to push into our platform, we can then utilize that to enhance the experience. And then Really, the next step beyond that is, okay, great, you, you personalized, maybe it's your homepage or a landing page, mm-hmm. but now bringing that personalization throughout the rest of the website, right? Yeah. And that's where landing pages themselves fall short. Not only is there a lot of overhead in having to manage, you know, 50 landing pages, <laughs> but now when a customer goes back to the website, yeah. they've lost that experience. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so by, being, by expanding personalization through the website, mm-hmm. and then even beyond that, um, our platform allows you to capture some of that data that we're tracking on site. Mm-hmm. So now we can further inform yeah. your follow-up email campaigns or retargeting or any of that, uh, once again, with, with the intention of uh, creating a fully consistent experience. Um, and I think one of the advantages we have is, you know, on the, on the acquisition side, you know, you have very targeted Facebook and CPC and all this mm-hmm. other stuff already going on. Yeah. Um, on the tail end of it, you have, you know, emails that are going out. You have, you know, retargeting that's already occurring. And that website is the connector. Mm-hmm. And so by not, you know, first and foremost, we can serve personalized content on the website, which is great by itself. Mm-hmm. But because it sits in the middle now, we can co- coordinate between those other customer touch points mm-hmm. to build that, that consistent experience. 
That's awesome. And I was looking, and um, so you did a test run with Spiritual Gangster. Yes. And there were some pretty impressive numbers. Um, so do you want to sort of share what that was, how they made it happen? Yeah. So Spiritual Gangster uh, predominantly is a female-oriented yoga brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were trying to introduce uh, some men's clothing and kids' clothing. Um, and initially what they try to do, which is what most companies try to do is, mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, put a scrolling banner on their homepage and they show yeah. some female clothing and men's clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem with that just in general is it's a little bit brand dilutive. Um, you know, especially when you have such a high percentage of your, uh, of a very loyal customer base, right? Mm-hmm. In their case, females. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what they, what they ended up seeing um, uh, you know, is essentially the, the men didn't, or the, you know, parents shopping for kids didn't really convert it anymore. Um, and in mm-hmm. fact, the conversions for females actually went down because they were diluting their message a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what we wanted to do with Persosa was mm-hmm. leave that female experience alone, right? We know that females convert pretty well. Yeah. Um, on their site, they were, they were converting pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we didn't want to touch that. We didn't want to mess with it. Mm-hmm. So what we chose to do was target the men specifically and the parents specifically searching for kids. So we ran some tests on those experiences. And the idea was uh, it was pretty simple to start. You click on a men's ad, you're going to come to a site with men's imagery, men's mm-hmm. products, um, maybe a different call to action to take you to the men's collection rather than new yeah. arrivals, which is going to be mostly female. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing with kids campaigns, right? You're going to kind of follow that through the website. Mm-hmm. Um, what we ended up seeing in a, in a pretty short amount of time, I mean, we're talking uh, about a week's worth of data, mm-hmm. um, uh, we were able to see uh, increased engagement. So specifically adding more products to the cart, we saw 31% increase in adding products to the shopping cart. Wow. And then on the conversion end, uh, mm-hmm. we saw a 49% increase in conversions in those underperforming segments. So we're able to lift the underperforming segments by 49% without any mm-hmm. impact to their female segment, which is already performing really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so those types of results are amazing to hear. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting around it also is, you know, as you start to evaluate different metrics across the website, you might see some things uh, shift in mm-hmm. what might seem like a negative direction, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily. So to give an More example. focused. Right. They're more Mm -hmm. focused. Um, So to give an example, you know, a lot of people care about time on site Mm -hmm. and they get really afraid if their time on site drops because they think, oh, our visitors aren't spending as much time on our website. Yeah. Well, if your customers are engaging more and they're buying more and your conversion rates higher because Mm -hmm. you're speaking to them better through personalization, Mm -hmm. who cares how long they're spending on their site? They know exactly where they need to go to get what they want and then they can check out. Exactly. And move on. Exactly. (laughs) As opposed to searching. And they don't have to have, you know, maybe now we're starting to see Uh the, the customer journey decrease. So now instead Mm -hmm. of having to have five visits before you convert, Mm -hmm. it only takes three visits to convert because you're seeing the appropriate message every single time. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a shift. Um, And this isn't just with personalization, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of these uh, newer marketing strategies and technologies coming out. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to have to be a mind shift in how we look at data Mm -hmm. and on a case by case basis, deciding what data is important to us as an organization? Mm-hmm. Do we want it to go up or down like time on site or bounce rate? Bounce rate's another great one. Mm-hmm. Um, and really getting a better sense of how do we measure success in our marketing and sales efforts? 
Absolutely. Very cool. So what's, uh, what is the sort of front end work that a customer has to do when they're using your platform? So do they have to build out their personas and then sort of build out the potential messaging for each of those so that when they do land on the site, it sort of knows what content to shuffle through? Yeah, so there's two pieces of it. There's the strategy, and then there's the the tactical implementation of mm-hmm. something like Persosa. Um, on the strategy side, a lot of companies they already do that. Mm-hmm. They already have persona work done. They already you know have uh, assets for different types of uh, visitors that they want to attract because they're using those assets on the acquisition side, right? They're mm-hmm. running different Facebook campaigns, and so they need mm-hmm. five different images for five different personas. Mm-hmm. Um, so we find that a lot of our customers already have that piece done. Um, on the implementation side, the great thing about our platform is it installs with one line of tracking code. So there's no technical implementation. You're not having to you know, sit in a development queue for you know, weeks or months to try to get someone <laughs> to put something on the website. Um, and then from that point on, it becomes a truly marketer's tool, meaning mm-hmm. a marketer can log into Persosa. They can manage their personalization configuration. Mm-hmm. They can manage the assets that, again, they probably already have from the acquisition side. Um, in our system, and then with a click of a button, they can publish it to the website. So that uh, it allows them to be more nimble. It allows them, you know, if, if we launch a new Facebook campaign today, we can very quickly go into Persosa and add an experience that's linked to that campaign yeah. without having to touch the website at all. That's amazing. Have Has there been a bit of like an education curve with some of the clients that you've, or customers that you've talked to? Or has it the concept sort of been embraced pretty pretty easily? Um, yeah, I think there's, again, there's two sides of that. There's education around what personalization really means. Mm-hmm. And then there's education around uh, how do we properly use a tool like this, Yeah. right? So around categorically personalization, um, it, because it's it's new, right? We, mm-hmm. we define it as, you know, the, the latest evolution of digital marketing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before that, uh, before that step of personalization, there's concepts like A-B testing and recommendation. Yeah. Um, the reality is personalization doesn't and shouldn't compete with those. Mm-hmm. Um, statistical A-B testing has a time and a place and can be very powerful if used properly. Mm-hmm. Same with recommendation, right? Showing products or cross-selling or upselling, uh, depending on on-site or, or purchase behavior, is really important to the success of an online retail company. Um, what a lot of customers then ignore, though, is the rest of their site around it. So our <laughs> definition of personalization mm-hmm. isn't, for example, the, the recommendation piece. Mm-hmm. It's the contextual experience around everything else that you're doing. Mm-hmm. So great, I come to a homepage and you're showing me recommended products or maybe a cross-sell based off of something I bought last time I was on your site. But what about the hero image? What about the, the call to action now, right? Maybe instead of trying to uh, message me as a brand new customer, you know I'm an existing customer. Yeah. So show me a different message. Show me something that, that shows that you care about me as a loyal customer because I came back to your site. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe now take me down a different funnel or you know through the website uh, based off of like my, my life cycle stage. So if I'm a mm-hmm. first visitor, maybe you want to educate me more about your brand. Right. And then if I'm a third time visitor, maybe you want to give me a little bit harder of a sell because now it's, it's time for me to buy. Right. Yeah. You've, you've been here enough. Buy something. <laughs> um, and so that's that's the side of personalization that we don't feel like brands are really uh, taking advantage of today. Yeah. Um, and then the other side of it is um, it's a, it's an issue I think that any new company faces is how do we help our customers properly use our tool? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that uh, that education part of it is something that 
um, we focus on as our on, in our onboarding experience. So when we mm-hmm. bring a new customer on, uh, we personalize our onboarding experience, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and work with them to identify what their existing personas are, take any existing mm-hmm. assets they have to help them deploy their first couple personalized experiences on their website mm-hmm. um, so that, A, they have something that's running so that they can see some positive results and we help them set up the tests and everything. Um, mm-hmm. But then more importantly, get them to understand how it all works together so that they can mm-hmm. maintain it over time. Very cool. And... I know AI is a hot topic that everyone's sort of been dropping and trying to figure yep. out. Are you guys doing any testing with that at all at this point? Um, we're doing a little bit of testing. We don't have anything built into our product, um, mm-hmm. but that's on purpose uh, for the time being. Uh, a- so AI can be dangerous, frankly, in the hands of the wrong marketers mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, especially if, if you're a very branding-focused marketer, mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want a machine controlling what your visitors see. Um, and, uh, you know, from our experience in the brand, uh, the marketers that we've been working with and the brands that we've been working with, mm-hmm. uh, is that they want a little bit more control over that experience. Um, and so for the time being, our product allows marketers to go in and set up configuration and mm-hmm. define the segments and define the messages and the images that they see, because yeah. they're already doing that on the acquisition side for the most part. Um, and they want to make sure that it's consistent themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I mean, with the data that we collect, uh, you know, over time we'll be working on some AI models. Mm-hmm. Um, but the vision there is not so much to automate the serving of content and serving of images because we still want to allow marketers to have control. Mm-hmm. But through that AI, we have the potential to offer more powerful suggestions to marketers to say, hey, Mm -hmm. here's something that we noticed from your on-site behavior versus what people are buying versus Mm -hmm. demographic information. Maybe you should think about targeting this type of group. And maybe even here's some images we recommend that you Mm -hmm. use. But at the end of the day, you're the marketer, you're the branding expert. Like You choose, but here's what we see. Yeah. Very cool. Where do you think this world of personalization, automation is going to go in the next like five to 10 years? Because it's becoming more and more hands off in terms of the people and like the manpower needed. So what do you think these teams of marketers will look like in the next few years? I think technology is going to take over more, Mm -hmm. um, which is good uh, as long as it's led by marketers, right? Mm -hmm. So as long as the strategy is defined by an expert, and allowing the technology to be a slave to that, mm-hmm. um, I think it's going to be there's going to be a lot more automation. Um, the way that we see the future and kind of our vision in the personalization space mm-hmm. is uh, the idea of uh, the movie Minority Report, right, with Tom Cruise, <laughs> right, and, and the idea and it sounds creepy, but it, it was really creepy at the time. Yeah, um, the idea of you know there's a scene where he's walking through a mall and you know they're scanning everyone's eyeballs, and so yeah. when he looks at a billboard, it changes and it knows his name and it speaks yes. to him and says, "Hey, how are you know." How did that pair of jeans you bought last week fit? Terrifying. It's it's terrifying. Um, But it can also be really beneficial to the end consumer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, consumer, I think people are more aware today that there's no privacy online. Yeah. Right? Um, I don't think consumers care as much if it's relevant to them, right? Mm -hmm. If it means that I'm seeing better ads, if it means that I'm seeing... Uh, you know, more contextual information about stuff that I actually care about as a consumer, mm-hmm. it doesn't bother me as much. It's when I start getting yeah. spammed by stuff that just doesn't make sense yeah. that I start, you know, uh, crying out about these privacy issues. Um, and so I think as long as that data is harnessed and used in an effective way, mm-hmm. um, using, you know, a, like a platform like Persosa, uh, and that's kind of our vision is to eventually expand outside of just websites mm-hmm. uh, and being a more generic personalization platform to where you can use us to configure and serve personalization 
across different channels. Mm -hmm. So on your website, maybe in a streaming radio app, uh, maybe on you know an internet connected billboard. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's kind of the, that's the grand vision that that I see. That's awesome. So what do you think would be the next step after the website personalization for you guys? Um, it, 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 it varies. It yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a top secret. Um, no, there's a, there's a couple different pilots that we're looking into. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, some are harder than others, right? So if you take like a podcasting app, for example, that's going to be a little bit easier because, um, you're able to track users better. It's internet connected. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, the, the potential to serve stuff in real time is there. Um, all the way down to like very traditional types of media are going to be more difficult. So yeah. like a billboard or a piece of mail, mm -hmm. um, it's not impossible. Uh, it's just, it's more difficult. So we're, we're starting on the, the less difficult side yes. to get some pilots <laughs> in place that we could prove out. <laughs> very cool. So switching more over to the entrepreneurial side, since you've had lots of, lots of adventures in that world, um, what is it like starting a business in Arizona? Um, starting a business in Arizona is great for a number of reasons. Um, there's a lot of just really helpful people. Mm -hmm. um, so you get a lot of advice, uh, yeah. for better or worse. Um, <laughs> but you get a lot of support also. Yeah. Um, and just because of the nature of, of Phoenix, uh, you know, it's not as expensive as trying to start mm -hmm. a business in New York or L.A. or San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, and so the nice thing about that is your business expenses ended up, end up being a little bit lower. Mm -hmm. um, but also if you're in a position like I have been many times where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, your, your income is dramatically decreasing <laughs> while you're trying to start this business, it makes it easier because yeah. the cost of living is just lower. Mm -hmm. um, outside of that, I think it's a really exciting time to start a business in Arizona because mm -hmm. It's mature enough to where there's a lot more resources than there were five years ago. Yeah. Um, like when I first started in Tracker, there wasn't really a whole lot of anything at the mm -hmm. time, at least nothing that I was exposed to. Yeah. So we have the resources in place, but it's still young enough to where I think we all have the opportunity to define what our startup yeah. ecosystem is going to look like. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's the part that I'm most excited about. How would you define it right now? Um, I think the, what's the, the SPHX word generous or yes. generosity. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, that's definitely there. Um, it's, it's kind of one of those environments where if you want to meet with someone yeah. about anything, regardless of, you know, C level all the way down to entry mm -hmm. level, like no, you know, no one's going to say no, like almost everyone's willing to meet for a cup of coffee and, and yeah. share ideas and give you feedback. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think just the, the generosity of, of uh, people's time, mm -hmm. right, and, and their willingness to help. And, um, you know, you can see in some other markets, people are a little bit more closed off and protective mm -hmm. of their ideas. And it's mm -hmm. a, you know, me versus everyone else mentality. Yeah. Uh, and I think here it's more of a like, OK, we might even be competitors, <laughs> well, how can we work together yeah. or how can we maybe help each other and, and make it, you know, so that it's not. Um, uh, it, it's it's not a, a zero sum game, right? Yeah. And, and help like how can we come together and make sure that everyone wins together? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, one other thing I think is sort of interesting about your world of entrepreneurship is that you're not the you're a technical co-founder, mm -hmm. um, which is 
very hard to find in a lot of instances. I feel like there's a lot of idea people that don't have the technical know-how. So what is it like usually being, I mean, you're the CEO and you're also the technical side right now. Mm -hmm. So what advantages do you have in that situation versus if it's just like more of the the idea person? Yeah, it's an interesting position to be in, especially in Phoenix. Um, Building something is not the hard part. All right, for, mm-hmm. for me or for where our company's at. Um, in fact, our product's been in market now for about a year or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to market very quickly, and we've iterated, and we've learned a lot. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of companies don't have the luxury of experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point, these you know a lot of idea people they have really great ideas. They might be able to you know sell the crap out of whatever they're trying to build, mm-hmm. um, but if it takes them three years to build it because they don't have the technical expertise and they have to rely on someone else, um, that's a problem. So I feel really fortunate in that the actual development of our vision is the easy part for us. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the other side of that, mm-hmm. uh, it means that there's other pieces of the business that are a little bit more difficult, mm-hmm. right? Like sales, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while sales might not be, you know, my strong suit um, uh, and, and you know, product takes over in that sense, um, in a way, I almost see that as a good problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good problem in that there's nothing holding us back. Um, and I'm fortunate to have, you know, a really great team, uh, specifically in my two co-founders, Mike and Greg, uh, and to where we all come together, we figure out how to move forward. Um, how can we all tackle sales together? How can we, you know, uh, use our combined knowledge to move forward without having roadblocks Mm -hmm. versus being on the other side of saying, Hey, look, if I only had this product, I know that I could sell it, but (laughs) I don't have the product, right? That's a really big roadblock. Um, and so, uh, again, just, you know, we're fortunate that we don't have that roadblock and that mm-hmm. our future is really in our own hands right now. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, you sort of touched on the sales side, which I feel like for a lot of SaaS companies mm-hmm. is a huge challenge to overcome. Um, so how are you guys sort of handling sales, you know, at least navigating it in the beginning? Um, in the beginning, it was way different than it is now. Okay. <laughs> um, a lot of it's been trial and error, candidly. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our struggle initially was around messaging and positioning. So yeah. getting... Uh, prospects to understand what we actually do and how we can fit into their tech stack and their, you know, all their other marketing initiatives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've gotten better at, over time, at at simplifying our message Mm -hmm. um, and making it more about how we can help them, right? And I think that's one of the biggest learnings for me personally, especially being a very technical person, is I want to come into the room and say, hey, look at all these cool things our product can do, right? (laughs) It can do this, it can do that. And uh, it's it's funny to think back because, you know, any any person that knows anything about sales, they're going to tell you to sell to the benefits, not to the features. But uh, anyone like me ignores that completely because you're you're excited about excited about it, right? (laughs) Like, like, hey, I worked on this for for six months. Like, look what it can do. And, And no one cares about that. Yeah. So I think that's been one of the most important lessons uh, is learning how to position what you're trying to sell Mm -hmm. as a benefit or even more importantly, as a solution to a problem or a pain that your prospect is feeling. And at the end of the day, if you can solve that for them, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter what you do. Mm -hmm. What you do only matters in, um, you know, maybe how fast you can help them solve it or what the cost is going to be or Mm -hmm. the differentiating factor between you and maybe a competitor. Mm -hmm. Um, But none of that matters if you can't solve a problem for them to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, the sales side is just so interesting to see how that how you can get the message across because everyone is excited. There's so many cool things. But it's all about if you can see the value or present the value. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, you can even see it on, on the complete opposite end, end of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, a history of companies, large and small, 
that have really great sales and then you look behind the curtain and there's really nothing going on, <laughs> right? But but in one way or another, they're able to solve a problem for their client and their client's willing to pay for it. Yeah. So I think that's a really good testament to what sales is all about. Um, and I think that what you actually do, in our case, our product, our platform, mm-hmm. um, needs to support that. Um, and so the way we operate our organization now in terms of priorities, uh, especially since our product's built and in market, um, is sales is our number one priority. And anything else we do around that, whether it's engineering or support or analytics, all of that is in support of sales. Interesting. So how do you guys uh, sort of manage that true north internally? Because I know it's super easy to get excited about side features or other things. Mm -hmm. How do you guys continue to make sure that that's like where you guys are all marching towards? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, We've done a lot of work as a team um, trying to, you know, we, we've always been on the same page, mm-hmm. um, but we've done a lot of work in defining what which page that actually is <laughs> uh, to make sure that we're all saying the same things, mm-hmm. we're all conveying the same message, mm-hmm. um, and really making sure that all of our priorities are aligned. Uh, and I feel really good as a team knowing that we're all on the same page in that in that regard. Um, so, you know, there's the messaging side of it and, you know, you could bring any of the other guys in here and they'd probably say the same thing about what Persosa does. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's good. Um, on the other side of it, I think it's really just staying in alignment, um, on a very regular basis. Mm-hmm. Right. So we all understand that sales is most important. If there's two meetings that come up next to each other and one of them is a product meeting, the other one's a sales meeting, the sales meeting takes priority. Mm-hmm. If we have two features in our uh, development roadmap, and one's a bug fix or a feature request that a high-profile client is asking about, and the other one's just a cool idea that someone <laughs> had, right? It's obvious which one's going to take priority. So yeah. I think just having setting that expectation for the whole team, mm-hmm. um, it kind of just solves it because then everyone knows. It's, it's very clear. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. thick line in the sand of what's what. Um, but then also just you know making sure that everyone communicates regularly. So mm-hmm. we have regular you know, stand-ups as a team to where we you know, talk about, what we've done, what we, what we have going on, if we need any help with anything. And so if there, if, if there is ever a misalignment of priorities or things getting done, mm-hmm. um, we have the forums regularly to where we make sure that we communicate and say, hey, you know what, this is actually more important for my department or for what I'm doing. Like, is there a way we can shift things around? And so mm-hmm. it's never, you know, like our roadmap isn't set in stone. It changes on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how we approach sales meetings and the messaging and the decks and stuff for sales meetings is always changing based off of new things that someone else on the team is learning. So I think yeah. communication within a team uh, is very important. So and to what you just said, how do you sort of, um, you said you've made a lot of iterations since you first went to market about a year ago. Um, so how, is that just based on customer feedback or how are those iterations sort of being managed? Yeah, so on the product side, we've made I'd say more improvements than uh, and, and additional features. Than, and th- those sorts of things have been inspired by customer feedback, mm-hmm. um, and also us taking a step back and thinking, okay, if we were our customer, right? What mm-hmm. what do we think would make it easier to use this product? Because being in a new category, we can't always rely on our customers to tell us what they want because. Yeah. We're, you know, they're having a hard time maybe understanding personalization to begin with, let yeah. alone telling us how to make it better. Yeah. Um, then, but on the messaging side, a lot of it was just trial and error. You know, mm-hmm. if we go into a meeting and it, it's a two-hour meeting because it takes us that long to communicate what we actually do and how we can help them. Um, <laughs> that might be a red flag. <laughs> yeah, then, then we know, okay, we need to do something better, right? Mm-hmm. So we're at the point now where we can actually 
uh, understand, uh, you know, our prospects' uh, concerns mm-hmm. and, and, and what they're trying to solve for in their business, convey what we're doing um, in, you know, a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, our measure of success there really is, is the time. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, that'll relate to, you know, the length of our sales cycle as, as we mm-hmm. see it get smaller. So for people that are starting businesses similar to yours or sort of just in general, um, how, like, what would your advice be in terms of sort of testing the viability of a potential product or idea? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I'm sure that there's that beginning where it is two hours to try to figure out, you know, try to explain it. But at what point do you say, okay, yeah, we need to keep pushing forward. This is a good idea versus maybe we should, you know, change it up. Yeah, I think the earlier the better. Mm-hmm. Um, you always hear the idea of minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. No one really knows what that means. Um, <laughs> I personally talk about it a little bit differently. So I use the concept of like minimal testable product. Mm-hmm. Right, so what's the absolute minimum you can build? And we're talking specifically like a tech product here, yeah. right? Obviously, mm-hmm. but what's the minimum product you could build or app or anything? to allow you to start getting feedback. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the feedback is, right? You don't need feedback on your grand company vision. You just need feedback on something. And maybe it's one little feature. Maybe it's you know feedback on our logo, right? Like mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Just start doing something to get feedback because the more data you get, um, the stronger your company is going to be just overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think beyond that, on the product side of things, it's defining what I like to call a minimal, minimum sellable product. Mm-hmm. Which is, all right, great. If I want 100 things in this product, um, does it really make sense to go out and build all 100 things? <laughs> and the answer is usually no, yeah. because that's your assumption. Mm-hmm. You don't actually know that that's what the market wants. And you could end mm-hmm. up wasting, and I've seen companies waste a lot of time and money building things that no one cares about. I've done it myself. Mm-hmm. I wasted, you know, in high school, I built all these products. <laughs> I spent all this time. Um, you but know, you learned so much. <laughs> yeah, oh, you learned you learn so much, but I wish I had that time back, yeah, right? Or I wish absolutely. I had tried to take some of those and get sales earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people are just, they're afraid to go and try to sell something mm-hmm. without having everything that they envisioned. Mm-hmm. All right, what's the worst case? You go in, yeah. you try to sell it, they say, no, we're not going to buy it because it's missing these three things. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Then go build those three things. At least now you have a reason to do it. Yeah. How early or like, is there a benchmark of like, this is the drop dead time or money or whatever before you really need to start testing the concept? No, that that's really, there's so many variables. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're more of an engineer like me, it might be sooner because you can build it yourself mm-hmm. and then have someone play around with it. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it depends on like what's your financial situation as a person, mm-hmm. um, how much actually does need to be done before you can start having someone test your product. Like there are some companies that legitimately require a couple years of development yeah. because there's a lot of pieces that need to be in place mm-hmm. before they have something that they can, you know, start testing in market. So it really is going to vary. Um, but I think as long as, you're doing it with the intention of testing as soon as possible. Like I think that's that's what's important is realizing mm-hmm. that you have your vision, but your mm-hmm. vision might actually not line up with reality. Mm-hmm. And the only way you can find out what reality is and where that overlap is is mm-hmm. to get real feedback. Got it. So bouncing back to something you said earlier, you said that uh, you're really bad at picking business names. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so how have you been picking business names just out of curiosity? Um, man, I couldn't tell you. A lot of it is around uh, available host names. Um, so mm-hmm. like coming up with ideas and going to GoDaddy and seeing if they're available. Just testing every possible combination. Uh, yeah, something mm-hmm. like that, I guess. Um, I think, so Persosa didn't used to be Persosa. Mm-hmm. We used to be Hiver Labs. 
which derived from this idea idea of like bees gathering honey and bringing it back to a hive and having this like <laughs> collective source of data. I like so, it. I yeah, I mean, it, if I you if it. you have five minutes, yeah. I can explain it yeah. to you, and, and you'll understand. <laughs> Um, and that was fine. Uh, and then we ran into some, tr- uh, we saw that there was another trademark that mm-hmm. was a little too close for comfort. Yeah. And, um, we, you know, weren't really married to the idea. We weren't in market that long. It didn't really matter. Yeah. So, uh, we, uh, came up with Persosa, which is a play on personalization and personas, right? Which are, I dig it. Yeah. Makes um, a little more sense. Yeah. And at, off, at least like immediately it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take me five. It only takes me three minutes to explain <laughs> exactly. that one. Exactly. Um, more importantly, the dot com was available, so we we're able go. to secure the domain name. Uh, we we're able to, uh, uh, you know, register the trademark and mm-hmm. all that. So, from a protectability standpoint, it was a lot better for the company to to change branding when we did. Got it. So, do you have any recommendations for people trying to come up with names on best practices? No, from no, all I don't. These iterations <laughs> and times of trying. Um, I'd Still say, trying to figure it so out. What, one trend that I've noticed, yes. um, and this is speaking from someone who obviously isn't taking his own medicine, <laughs> is I feel like there was this trend of like, hey, let's just pick the wackiest name and like let's yes. take vowels out of it and mm-hmm. let's you know do all this stuff. Like in tracker, right? It was yeah. like KR at the end. You know, mm-hmm. that was, it was cool at the time. It was super cool. Yeah, everyone, Still super everyone cool. was doing it. <laughs> um, and now there's kind of the shift of companies using like very, very basic words mm-hmm. uh, for their company names um, or product names. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're spending, you know, hundreds of th- thousands of dollars to get those domain names. Yeah, um, but I-, I think people just in general, right? You look at like design trends, everything's mm-hmm. becoming more simplified. Mm-hmm. And I think the same is, is true with company names. And so I would say, Find out what you want to do. Like, what what is your company about? What's your vision? What are you building? Whatever it is, mm-hmm. and how can you simplify that uh, into like words that people understand and know how to spell and that yes. go together easily. <laughs> uh, and then the hardest part from there is the availability, right? Yeah. So making sure that there aren't any trademarks to where someone's going to come after you in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, making sure that you know you can get a domain name that's because uh, it's one thing if your if your company has a good name, but then if the domain name is obscure because your actual yeah. company name wasn't available, um, if you depend on traffic, it might make it difficult for people to find your site. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of coming up with the the names of the company, uh, if I were to do it again, I would mm-hmm. just stay as simple as possible. And then are you pro longer domain name, but with a .com or do you go like shorter name with the .co? Ooh. This is a controversial issue. It is. It's very controversial. (laughs) I think it depends on the company. Um, If you're a company, specifically like a consumer brand, Mm -hmm. that depends on people knowing and being able to type in your domain name, Mm -hmm. I think it matters to be a .com still. It might not in the next five to ten years, but today it still does. Um, if you're more of like maybe a B2B company or, um, you know, you have low website traffic for one reason or another, mm-hmm. or 99% of your website traffic is coming from paid media. So mm-hmm. people don't even know what your domain is. They're just clicking on ads mm-hmm. then it probably doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Cool. Well, one last question. Um, how much of your success to date do you credit to your intelligence and just determination and how much do you credit to luck? Um, I, you know what? I've never thought about it from either of those perspectives. Um, I think if I had to boil it down to one thing, it would really mm-hmm. just be, 
the opportunities that I took advantage of mm-hmm. um, and having a very wide range of experience. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the sector side, right, being in both the private and public sector, working for large companies, working for startups, working for, you know, small companies in between, mm-hmm. um, being able to work on, uh, you know, development projects on one end and then more marketing projects and analytics stuff on the other end. Um I think that has given me the unique ability to see the bigger picture in a lot of areas. Yeah. Not that I always see it. I mean, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> um, but in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it gives me just a, a better overall vision of, of at least what I want to do, mm-hmm. uh, with my career and, uh, with, you know, uh, with my company, mm-hmm. um, you know, outside of that, I mean, it's, it's all the basic stuff, right? It's the hard work and stick with it and, <laughs> Uh, you know, don't be afraid or, or be afraid, but work through the fear. Exactly. Um, I, I think, you know, those are the, those are the ingredients mm-hmm. to being successful. Not that I am by any means, but so at least, you know, getting to a point where you're happy mm-hmm. in your career. Um, and then, you know, taking advantage of, of any opportunities that come your way mm-hmm. and whether that's taking a job that maybe you were unsure about, um, or, you know, taking an hour to have coffee with someone that you don't know. Um, to where you might be able to learn from them or they might be able to learn from you. Yeah. I think that that is definitely, uh, the best piece of advice. Just, just embrace it all. Go for it. Try it out. (laughs) Um, so if people want to get a hold of you or learn more about Persosa, how can they do that? Um, so, uh, they could, I have a website, I think still, uh, online. Maybe, maybe if, if I do, it's Kirk Morales.com. Um, and then our company, persosa.com, P-E-R-S-O-S-A. Um, otherwise, you know, the, the Twitter sphere, Twitter the, sphere, the Twitter sphere. Um, yeah. I mean, it's pretty much it, I guess. LinkedIn. I don't yeah. know. Where, how do people get in touch these days? I don't know. I can I, give my address if anyone wants to send me a postcard. <laughs> I don't really know. Or just look for uh, one of the bald guys at, I guess, PHX event. Yeah. Bald yeah. guy, beard guy. There you go. Yeah. One of those. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Kirk. A pleasure as always. Yes. Thank you. It was great to be here. All right. Bye. Thank you so much, everyone. Until next time.